Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And on today's interview, I am interviewing Eden Taiji, who just became the sixth place finisher at this year's Idaho Smoke and Fire 400. One thing that will quickly set Eden apart from the crowd is his age. At only 13 years old, he signed up to take on this route solo, self-supported, no friends or family was racing with him. He did this all on his own. And like I mentioned, he finished in sixth place with a time of two days, 15 hours and 31 minutes. There was actually only an hour and a half that separated the third and sixth place finishers. So this was a very tight race. And Eden actually finished only eight hours behind the legend, Jay Peterberry. As a father of a 12-year-old who is about to turn 13, this story absolutely captivated me. I was intrigued, impressed, and wanted to get to know Eden, wanted to understand what makes him tick, and learn from him and his youthful wisdom. So glad that he joined us on today's episode. I had a absolute delight talking to him, and I cannot wait to see what he does in the future. If you're not familiar with the Idaho Smoke and Fire 400, it's been around for a while. They first started in 2014, and as the name indicates, it is held in Idaho, and it's about 400 miles. Typically, it is a loop, but this year, and also true to its name, Fire demanded a reroute, making the route a little bit closer to 375 miles. And instead of being a traditional loop, it was actually an out and back, which made for some interesting dot watching and also interesting from the participant standpoint. I've often said on this podcast that the great thing about bikepacking and endurance sports is that it is a great equalizer. Bikepack racing doesn't care how old you are, what gender you are, if you're on the latest, greatest bike, or if you're a sponsored rider. It truly is a great equalizer. And Eden's story is just one more example of how age really is just a number. And while many people may look at age as a barrier, it was not so for Eden. And when you remove that barrier, it seems like almost anything is possible. I appreciate Eden coming on to share his story, and we are about to get right into it. But before we do, let us thank the people that made this episode possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. This week, we'd like to welcome Taylor Evans, Ian Rote, and Sky Tetero Crosby. Thank you all so much for signing up to be sustaining members of the podcast. A quick reminder that Hefe Bike is doubling up all patron pledges for a limited time. So all of your donations have been doubled up thanks to my friends over at Hefe Bike. If you'd like to check them out, you can do so over at hefe.bike. And if you would like to sign up to be a sustaining member of this podcast, and get your contribution doubled. You can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death. Today's episode is also brought to us by Athletic Greens. 
I've been using Athletic Greens for a while now as a way to enhance my daily nutrition and build a better foundation for better health. With Athletic Greens, you're going to fill in your nutrient gaps. It promotes gut health and supports whole body vitality, all with AG1. All you need is one daily serving that delivers a potent blend of nine healthy products, a multivitamin, minerals, probiotics, adaptions, and more, all working together to help you feel like your healthiest self. Now, I like to take mine, if I'm at home, in a smoothie that I make every day. I'm big on smoothies, and it's easy to throw that in there, blend it up, and get all of the benefits from AG1. But if I'm bikepacking, they do make a travel pack that makes it super easy to get all of your 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced nutrients in one convenient daily serving. All you got to do is open that bad boy dump it into about eight ounces of water and enjoy. And as you know, when we're out bikepacking, it can be very difficult to get the nutrients that you need. And this is one very easy way to make that happen when you're out bikepacking. Now, Athletic Greens is making it easy for you to try their product and offering you a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2 and five travel packs. To unlock that offer, go to athleticgreens.com forward slash bikes or death and take control of your health today. All right, everybody. Today, we're going to announce a new sponsor for the Bikes or Death Takeover, GREP. And we have Jan here from GREP to tell us all about it. Jan, thanks for being here. And for people who don't know, uh, well, first off, thank you for being a sponsor of the takeover. That's huge. We can't do these events without support, and we really appreciate that. But for the uninitiated, for people who may not know, what is GREP? Yeah, hey, Patrick, thanks for having me. First of all, super happy to be sponsor of the Mulberry Gap takeover, and uh, we're super happy to be be on board, even from the distance. So, Grab is a company from Sweden. Together with my friend Thomas, we are basically uh, Grab, and we are manufacturing reusable woven handlebar tapes. We have like our manufacturing facility in Sweden, and yeah, this is in a nutshell pretty much what we're doing. One fun idea that we had for the takeover is y'all are sponsoring the the happy hour. We'll be imbibing on some adult beverages and <laughs> uh, we're going to use y'all's handlebar tape to make koozies uh, for all the drinks. So everybody will get to kind of touch and feel the product and uh, and get drunk while using it, which is, I hope, a proved uh, process. Uh, <laughs> It's an awesome idea. I hope we're gonna we're gonna make it happen to get the prototype into the cozy shape and everyone has their hands on the when when enjoying the, the adult beverages. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's a great tie-in. Uh, I think that's gonna be fun. So, I mean, there are a lot of you know handlebar tapes out there. What do you think Grep does well? Well, what I think what differentiates us from uh, let's say most of the handlebar tapes out there is that we have the reusability aspect so our handlebar tape which is a woven handlebar tape is coming without any adhesive on the backside and that lack of adhesive on the backside is basically gives you the opportunity to reuse the tape over and over again so if you switch setups you can unravel the tape 
and basically rewrap it again. We have rubber basically threads in the tape which hold it in place so it will not slip because if you think like, hey, no adhesive, it will slip. No, it won't slip. And that gives you basically the capabilities to to go away from a single-use product, which is conventional bar tapes usually. When you unwrap them, most of the time break. Not all, but they say most of the time. And with ours, you have basically residual free handlebar tape, uh, handlebar after you unwrap the tape. And then you can change like whatever change your brake hose or something like that and then wrap the bar tape again and when it's dirty or you have been sweat into it plenty you just throw it in the wash machine wash it with your bibs or t-shirts or whatever you use for cycling or whatever at 40 degrees and you have a fresh bar tape afterwards coming out from the washing machine and you put it on your bike and you should be good to go Man, that is super cool. I love that it's reusable. Um, that's super smart, and I think that that's a feature that a lot of that'll resonate with a lot of people for sure. I'm gonna send people to your website if they want to check out your bar tape, uh, your handlebar tape. Y'all are at grep.cc. That's G-R-E-P-P.cc. You can check out some of their reusable handlebar tape there. And of course, if you're going to be coming to the Bikes for Death Takeover at Mulberry Gap, uh, you'll be able to get your hands on some there and some beer at the same time. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Jan. Thanks, Patrick, for having me. Now, Grep is based out of Sweden. A lot of our listeners are based in the United States. And if you are in the U.S., just head over to grep.cc. That's G-R-E-P-P dot C-C. And use their store finder to find local distributors in the United States. All right, everybody, the bills have been paid and the lights will be on for one more week. Thank you so much to our sponsors that allow us to bring these episodes to you for free. Now, without further ado, let's get into my chat with Eden Taiji. But first, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes Are Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. Ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. I'm super curious. I have a daughter that's 12. She turns 13 and in two months, she just got out of like her watching cartoon phase, you know, like, um, you know, she's still pretty young. I consider her pretty young. Uh, I don't, don't in my mind envision her going out and riding any 400 mile uh, routes anytime soon. So I'm really curious, like, how were you introduced to cycling and, and also like, at what point did bikepacking even come on to your radar? Um, well, I like started, um, I've been biking pretty much since I was like two. Um, I got like one of those scoop bikes, but like, I really got into more competitive biking like three years ago where it wasn't really, um, like bikepacking, but I did some bike races through like Nika and to, I just got into biking probably around three years ago as well. 
but one of our friends um took me or the first time I actually went bikepacking was with my dad and um one of his friends and his friend's kid um we went it was just like a short 80 mile ride um following part of the Idaho um hot springs route and um so that was the first time we did it in about three days um but then the first bigger ride I did it was like 250 miles and um I did that with one of um my friends and their parents and the my friends two other siblings and we rode from Stanley following the um hot springs route again um up to McCall which is another um town in our state in Idaho but yeah and then the first time I did like an alone bikepacking trip was last year um I was gonna go I was gonna try to do like a 300 mile trip but uh the first day or the first night um I got really cold so I just like decided to um just make it an overnighter so yeah wow that is insane Recently on the podcast, I had um, PJ Terry on. Uh, he's a 17-year-old kid that I should say maybe young man that just uh, co-shared the win at the Transnord Georgia. Um, did you happen to hear about him? Um, no, I haven't. Yeah, that's crazy. Because you were like, in my mind, you're like, holy crap, 17, I can't believe, you know, you did something this epic at 17. And then Eden comes along and you're like, Hold my Red Bull. Watch this. <laughs> no shade, PJ. Uh, all of it's cool, but it's interesting, man. I wonder if like bikepacking, if this is what we're going to see, younger and younger people who are kind of growing up aware, involved in bikepacking, and uh, I, it can only mean good things for the future of bikepacking if people are starting to get into it for from a, a really young age. So you have... Your dad uh, that went bikepacking with you for the first time, was it your dad taking you bikepacking or was it you convincing your dad to go bikepacking with you? I think it was just my dad like trying to just like find a new sport because I didn't really have a sport I liked before that. Like I had tried soccer, but I didn't really like just how that worked. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So is your dad a bikepacker or, or what? Um, he's not necessarily a bike packer, but, uh, he has been like racing bikes, um, for a pretty long time. Okay. So he's in the cycling world, but so where did the idea of bike packing even, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think from his perspective, it sounds like you were probably about 10 years old when, uh, he took you for the first time. And that's a, that's a pretty like monumental thing. Like you skipped all the cycling that comes before that and you went straight to uh, bikepacking. Do you know, what was it about bikepacking that he thought you would like or that attracted you to bikepacking? Well, before that, um, I had like, I wasn't really into biking that much, but I had definitely done some biking and he thought it would probably just be like a fun thing to go out and do for like a weekend. So how did that trip go? It was good. The first day we went, like, it was super long. We went 50 miles. Um, 
or super long at the time. Um, but the, yeah, so that was majority of it. And then the second day we only did like 20 miles. And then the third day we did another like 20 miles. That's still like 50 miles at 10 years old is pretty, is really epic actually. So you're saying it's short, but you know, there's plenty of people that are well uh, older than you that would have a very difficult time doing that. Did you, did you enjoy that trip? Was it hard, challenging, fun? Like what was your takeaway from that first trip? I think I just really liked being able to like go from our house. That's where we started and just being able to go and do this trip, like just right out of our backyard. Yeah. There, when I was, so, I mean, you know, it's crazy when I was your age, I did a 20 mile, I, it was a, it was a bike trip, but a car carried all of our camping gear. So we like biked and camped, but there was no, um, there was no like carrying your stuff essentially. And I thought that was like the most epic thing like a 12 year old kid could do. And I mean, I guess it's still cool, but you blew me out of the water. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's freaking amazing that, that at 12 or 10, you're doing this kind of stuff. I know for me at that age, I found a lot of like freedom in, in that, you know, like you don't have your own car, you know, you're kind of relying on your parents to probably take you most places. Is that one of the things I know for me, that's one of my favorite things is I think the bicycle just unlocked a sense of freedom to go out and explore and just get from point A to B. Um, is that what you found as well? Yeah. 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 So do you think whenever you turn 16, you're going to get a car or stick with the bike? I'm pretty excited to probably get a car, but I won't really drive it like around too terribly much. It's just also another thing like, cause we live next to some pretty good trails, but I've ridden them like almost every day, the same ones. And just, there's this, like we have Galena, which is a re they have really nice trails up there. And it's about like a 45 minute drive. Um, but I wouldn't really want to like go up there with all my bags and everything and like stay up there. It's just for like a day. Cause they don't really have, yeah. Um, much of like a trail, a good trail to get up there. Yeah. Well, that's a good answer. If you're going to get a car, the only purpose of the car is to get you and your bike to somewhere else cool to go ride. That's the right answer. So you actually have friends. You said you went bikepacking with, uh, man, a friend and their two siblings and, and their dad or their, their, one of their parents. Uh huh. Their mom. Yeah. Wow. Who, who is that? I might need to talk to them too. I love, I love, uh, kids and families that are getting out and doing this kind of stuff. I always find it, um, inspiring because not a lot of people are, are doing this with kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a fun trip. Uh, the, so one of the mom's kids is my age. And then one of them was pretty young at the time. And then she also had like a toddler that she was, um, had in like a bot or a burly, uh, that was attached to her bike. What's her name? The mom's name is Kara Liberator. And then the kid's name is or one of the kids is Zoe Libertor. Is that your friend, Zoe? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. 
Man, that is crazy. Uh, why why didn't your dad go on that trip? Did did you leave your dad in the dust? Because you mentioned that like he went on the first one and then the next two, he what he didn't join on those two. So did did you like surpass him or or what? <laughs> I think that was probably, he was just doing a lot of work and he couldn't really go on that trip with me. Oh, that's a bummer. So yeah, he, yeah, he still wouldn't, wouldn't mind going, but I definitely know what it's like to, uh, to work and miss out on fun. Unfortunately, like, enjoy it while, enjoy it while you can. So, uh, how many, how many friends do you have that, that bike pack? Really only Zoe. Okay. Yeah. And then. I have one other friend, uh, he doesn't really, he's not really like bike packing every day, uh, or like that much, but his name is Jonas. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Are they, then they're both about your age. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. How do you think, uh, do you think that the knowledge of, of bike packing is just, is it just like, like, are people just more aware of bike packing? You know, because it wasn't like five or six years ago, bikepacking was still, I think, pretty underground, so to speak. And it was just kind of emerging and people were really starting to learn about it. But it, it's interesting. It seems like at a very young age, like people are starting to be aware of bikepacking. Um, is it is it just kind of common knowledge, you think? I wouldn't necessarily call it like common knowledge. But it's definitely getting like much more popular because just, yeah, like the freedom of being able to go on your bike and go for long distances. In your friend group, are, how aware are they of what, what you did at the Idaho Smoke and Fire? So actually my class, the first day I went out there, they actually like put up the track leaders and they watched me a little bit. And so that was pretty cool. But yeah. They were, so they were pretty aware of it. Did, uh, did you have any other friends that signed up for the smoke and fire and did it with you or did you do it by yourself or did your dad even sign up or anything? No, I did it totally by myself. Whoa, that's crazy. Well, we'll talk more. We're definitely going to talk about smoke and fire. Uh, I had another question about what do you, what do you think that your dad and your family did right to, to like, introduce you to bikepacking essentially you know because i'm sure there's a lot of parents that are going to be listening they're like how do i get my 10 year old to go bikepacking and and not only go bikepacking but enjoy it so much that you you take it and you're like screw that i'm gonna go do 400 miles like what do you think that your family did right do you have any idea just probably just like introducing me into like just biking for not like for long distances, but just um, for shorter distances and then gradually like moving up to maybe like an overnighter or something longer. Yeah. Is your family pretty outdoorsy in general? Yeah, my dad is. My mom isn't quite as outdoorsy. <laughs> Do you have uh, brothers and sisters? No, I'm just an only child. Yeah. So uh, they get to take you or I guess your dad gets to take you on on all the adventures no no family rivalry <laughs> no i'm curious are there any uh are there any people uh 
you know, being so young, it, it, you don't have a lot of it's probably uh, other people your age that you can really like look up to. I think a lot of younger people might be looking up to you at this point, but who are, who are you looking at in bikepacking? Like who inspires you? Who do you look, look up to in, in bikepacking? Well, Jay, the person that like Jay Peterberry, the person that won the smoke and fire this year, he's pretty like inspiring. And then also one other young person that does bikepacking, their name is Jacob. And he like, he rode the Silk Road with Jay and did, has done like a lot of other, like he did the Iditarod and has done a lot of other cool bikepacking things. Yeah, Jacob, I think he did uh, Iditarod at 16, if I remember correctly. And then the next year, that same year, did Silk Road, both with Jay Peterberry, which is really cool. So uh, did you get a chance? Did you know Jay prior to going into Smoke and Fire, or did you get a chance to meet him while you were there? I didn't really know him. I'd heard of him, but uh, I did get, like, yeah, I kind of met him. He waited at the end because... We had met a couple of people prior to the race, like when, because me and my dad actually did a kind of reconnaissance mission and we rode the entire smoke and fire loop. And we met a couple of people that were doing the race and they had told me, or they had told Jay about me. And so Jay waited at the end. And then we also have some friends that knew Jay. So they told him about me as well. Yeah. I think you, Jacob and PJ Terry are y'all are the three youngest people I know of that are, you know, I mean, not just like bikepacking, but, you know, competing and, and signing up for some really epic and challenging races. And it is kind of cool how JP is uh, taken. It seems like he's taken Jake, uh, Jacob under his wing and um, done some really, really neat stuff. So that's really neat that he like waited around for you um, to say hi. So at what point did you say, I'm going to sign up for smoke and fire? Actually, did, did you, did you say here, how did it go down? Did you say, I'm going to sign up for smoke and fire? Or did you just say to yourself, I want to take on a big challenge and then go seeking out a challenge? Like, how did that play out? Um, well, I kind of like this spring, I kind of was just searching like bikepacking races around um our area and because i had gotten really into like doing like uh nike races but they're super short and i prefer endurance um and i found the smoke and fire and i'm like this seems pretty cool so i did some like research on it and um found the route and everything and then i like sent in like a letter of intent like pretty early because i was pretty uh like hyped up about it. Um, and then me and my dad rode the course and I was like, okay, this is going to be pretty hard. This is going to be fun. And then like, as it started to get closer, I, I like didn't really know if I was going to do it. I was like, this would be pretty fun to do. Um, maybe I'll do it this year. Maybe I'll do it like in other years. But then like when they put out the track leaders, I'm like, or the track leader registration, um, I'm like, okay, it's getting more real. So I signed up for that and like packed, I had been like kind of testing out my gear, getting gear and packing for a lot, but like for a while before that, but then I'm like, okay, it's starting to get real. So yeah. 
So you decided to just go in and do it. What were, uh, like, what was bouncing around in your mind? What was, because it sounds like you didn't actually commit, commit until, like, you signed up but you didn't like commit, commit until later on. Like what, what was going on that, you know, was it just equipment? Was it training? Was it concerns about something? Like what was the question mark, whether or not you would actually do it? Just like if I would be able to do those, like, cause I like the longest ride I've ever done. It like up to that point hadn't been that long. I feel like I could go, after the rides, I feel like I could, like my, my longest rides, I feel like I could have gone farther, but I didn't know if I would be able to like actually fully do like a hundred miles day after day after day. So that was one of it. And then also uh, about like predators, like bears or whatever. We don't have that many, but the, so like my first solo trip, it was cold like the first night, but I also saw a ton of deer eyes and that was like kind of scary for me because yeah, I was like 12 or so, but yeah. <laughs> and you didn't know they were deer, deer eyes or what? <laughs> yeah, I just did. I didn't know what they were. And it was kind of weird. I was like riding on the highway and someone honked their horn at me. And like that just kind of set me off. And then I looked down into like the bushes and there were a ton of deer eyes. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to put my daughter on blast, but you know, she doesn't even like, uh, I don't leave her home very often, but like she will not, uh, you know, if I go to the grocery store for an hour or whatever, she doesn't even like to be home alone when it's nighttime, much, much less like going bike packing on her own. I, I actually meant to ask you about this earlier, but like, wh what is your parents' perspective on, you know, specifically that first bikepacking trip you did by yourself completely solo? were your parents concerned uh about that yeah so they were they were like um not they weren't too terribly concerned but they like had me have uh like some bear spray and a spot tracker just in case um and then also i think i did i borrowed someone's satellite phone for that as well okay what what about you what what did you have any concerns going solo i mean i just you know i was interviewing a uh, gemma uh, the last episode that just came out she got a fkt on the highland trail 550 and you know she's 40 years old and didn't camp by herself until like i think like 39 or something like that you know and it's 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 pretty common. I know plenty of like grown men that are scared to sleep in the woods by themselves. They hear a uh, a scary noise and you know it kind of freaks them out. So, what about you? Did you have any concerns about doing? Uh, you know, I think you said that was a three hundred mile route solo. Yeah, um, I I like had some concerns because I had only really like really studied the first part of the route I didn't really know where the second part of the route went through because I had just kind of made it like on well I was actually I was also following part of the um Idaho smoke and or not smoke and fire uh hot springs route I was following part of it doing it backwards and I had only really ridden like the first part or known that first part I didn't really know the second part of it so I was concerned about doing like just what it would be like to be alone out there for multiple days. And yeah, so I decided to just kind of do 
uh, like overnighter because I started pretty late the first day and rode into the night a little bit. And that was scary with like the deer eyes. So I camped at only like 30 miles and woke up the next day, kept riding. And I think I stopped at like mile 60 where there was this grocery store. And I'm like, mom, dad, can you please come pick me up? (laughs) (laughs) What did they say? No. Um, no, they were like, yeah, we can. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Of course they come and get you, uh, most parents do, I think. Hopefully, they come. And, they come and get you. Was that the only? Uh, was that the only real concern? Is just uh, what was the deer eyes that kind of spooked you a little bit? Yeah. Did did that? What was your like takeaway from that trip? Did it bum you out that you weren't able to complete it? Did you learn a lot and grow from that? Like, what was your takeaway? It bummed me out some that I couldn't complete it, but it was just also like. I thought it was, even though I got scared by the deer eyes, I thought it was like pretty fun to be out there and just be like, feel like free and like alone to just like think whatever you want to think and just, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, there's a lot of freedom, but you know, not a lot of 13 year olds might know how to manage themselves with that much freedom, you know? I mean, if you're used to always having either teachers or coaches or parents who are, you know, predominantly always there, giving you guidance, helping you if you have questions. I mean, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that, but there's also a lot of responsibility that that comes with that freedom. Do you, you, I mean, if you had to evaluate yourself, do you you find that you're a fairly responsible and, and, I don't know, capable, confident young man? Yeah, I'm pretty, like, cautious. Uh, I don't really, like, go do crazy, like, well. um, (laughs) (laughs) I was going to challenge you on that, but it sounds like you're backpedaling, so I'll let you. (laughs) I don't go do, like, dumb stuff. Uh, I'm pretty cautious, yeah. Yeah. Some people would uh, definitely argue about the 400 miles smoke and fire, but but I agree with you. I think you do anything just about um, cautiously and and take certain protocols and procedures to make sure that you know you're you're ready to take on a challenge. Can you can you talk about some of the things that you've done to to make you feel like you're prepared to take on a, a big challenge like that? Just I'm like riding every day and the main thing was just getting my bike ready. I had to like, I was, I built up a dynamo wheel. I like got all these, well, I already had a lot of bags, but I had to get a new water filter and just getting a lot of gear. And yeah. Did you not have, cause you had already done some bikepacking trips. Were you borrowing gear or did you just need better gear to, to actually do the race? Well, so I had been borrowing like frame bags and stuff and I just used like kind of a fanny pack that I strapped onto my handlebars for like a handlebar bag. And then I had a pretty nice seat bag though. Um, but yeah, I just had to, so I got, uh, like handlebar bag and then a frame bag as well. Yeah. Right on. Uh, one thing I saw on your Instagram that I thought was really cool was your, uh, tarp, uh, setup. 
Um, do you want to talk about how you set up your tarp and, and how well it worked on the smoke and fire? So, yeah, I was just basically, I propped up my bike or I like took the wheel, the front wheel off my bike and put the fork on the ground. And then I draped my tarp over the handlebars of the bike uh, to kind of create a tent and then staked that down. And then in the back of the tarp, I put up the wheel that I had already taken off to kind of prop it up. So it wasn't like flopping around on the ground. And then I staked down the ends. So it wasn't like a freestanding thing. You had to have stakes to plant it into the ground. But I actually didn't. I brought that on the smoke and fire just in case it did rain, which it did. But the first night, um, it was raining and I didn't really want to set up the tarp. Um, so I actually found like a pit toilet and like rolled out my stuff in under the like little thingy. Oh, yeah. Now you're a bike packer. You're not a real bike packer until you sleep in a pit toilet. I think that's a rule. <laughs> You check that one off your uh, bucket list. What uh, what tarp was that that you were using? Was it designed to use in the manner you were using it, or did you kind of rig it up that way? No, it was just basically like an ultralight tarp that my dad had had for quite a while. And I'm just like, that would be pretty cool. I think I like saw a video. I was watching videos of like ultra endurance bikepacking events, and I saw like a video of someone doing something like that. And I would like, I kind of got inspiration from that and was like, that would be cool. I'm going to try to do that with the tarp I have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that setup. I've used a similar one. Um, yeah. Great minimal setup. You just need a pad, a sleeping bag and, um, and a tarp, you know, and, uh, as long as it doesn't rain too much, I think the downside is if it rains too much, you're just going to be like floating on a river, I guess, of water, but <laughs> Hey, it's bikepacking, right? Let's uh let's talk about the uh the reconnaissance ride that you and your dad did. Um when when did y'all do that? Um we did it like right after I got out of school uh this year. So I think we did it June like the end of June. Yeah. How did that go? How many days did y'all take to do it? Um so we took 6 days to do the like full route and it went really well so we did the full route starting from our valley because it goes right through um ketchum which is near where we live and so we just started in ketchum because we didn't want to drive like all the way down to boise which is about two hours away from us so that's what we said yeah I, I saw you made a YouTube video of that on your uh, YouTube channel. Uh, your dad was saying that you were kicking his butt. Is that true? Or was he just saying for that for the camera? I think he got like pretty tired. He thought it was just going to be somewhat of like uh vacation, but um, we kind of, we didn't really like think about like how much he had to get back to work. So we're like, okay, yeah, we can do it in six days. That'll be fine. Um, but then more, that's like, uh, 70 miles a day. And the first days we had been getting up kind of late, but then like the last couple of days we had to start getting up at like 4am and riding till like 12 or so. And yeah, so it got, it got more of like, uh, more of like something that would be resemble more of a race than just like a leisurely vacation. So who was having more fun? You or your dad? 
I was having a lot of fun. It was really fun. Was your dad happy or miserable? Um, he was happy. There were some parts where he was like pretty tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. I'm still blown away. I don't know if I'll get used to it by the end of this interview that, um, I mean, I, I do take my kids bikepacking, nothing even close to the scale. I mean, we're talking like when I take my kids, it's like seven, eight, 10 miles, you know, like very minimal. And we're in Texas. There's no hills here. You know, there's no mountains. Um, so I'm still wrapping my head around around that. Do you have any idea like what what makes you such a good endurance? I mean, we could call you an endurance athlete at this point, you know, like how much do you weigh? Um, I weigh like 85 pounds. Yeah. You weigh 85 pounds. And I read that your bike was fully loaded with 37 pounds. So half your weight, essentially. What makes you good at endurance? Do you think? I don't know. It's just, I kind of, I don't really like, I'm not really built to like sprint on a, like a four mile track. I'm like, so I'm, yeah, I'm pretty light for how much or my age. And, um, I just kind of like going for long distances. Yeah. I think that's what I was wondering. I, I wonder if it's like a more of just like a mental enjoyment. Cause if you are enjoying something, you're going to be able to do it and enjoy it for longer periods of time. And so maybe it's just a natural, um, enjoyment of, of going long distances. Mm -hmm, yeah. So when you finished, uh, the smoke and fire with your dad, what was the conversation like between y'all? Were you like fired up or was your dad fired up? Um, yeah, I really, I really liked the course. Like it was, it has a lot of climbing and we did it in a pretty like hot, part of the we did it like it gets pretty hot around june or july whenever we did it so there were like some hundred degree degree days and that was pretty hard but like towards september it starts to cool off and i was just really like hyped up about that and uh i was just excited to like get all my gear ready and everything like that what did you learn from doing that, the smoke and fire with your dad that helped you prepare for the actual race? Just like, that was the first time I'd ever really like ridden 90 miles in a day. And I like was, we were able to do that multiple days in a row. And I was like, whoa, I could actually do this. Like, it's not just some dream of mine. Yeah. So you learned you were capable, which is very important. The mental aspect of it, believing that you can do something, knowing that you're capable is vital. What about with like your gear or anything like that? Did you find holes in your gear, your setup that you can improve to make better for the actual race? So for the reconnaissance mission, I brought like a lot of extra stuff and I had me and my dad have like a pretty strict diet or pretty much my entire family has a pretty strict diet. We only eat organic foods and I had brought like a lot of heavy foods that um, took up a lot of space and were heavy. So for the actual race, I dehydrated um, a lot of food so that I could like cold soak it. I didn't bring a stove, but just like putting it in a container with water like an hour before I needed to eat. It was like so much lighter and it was much less 
like area that it filled up in my bag. Yeah, that's smart, man. I've actually uh, done a similar thing. There's the uh, there's a dehydrator, but there's another one. There's like freeze dried and dehydrated, and it's the freeze dry one that's like it's a super expensive machine. I'm guessing you'll have the dehydrator that uh, I don't know. They're like we. I looked into getting one, and they're like. A used uh, freeze dryer is like three thousand, five thousand dollars. Like, I I think it actually the idea that I had is I wanted to start a company where I freeze dry like all like really good food because, like you, I I don't have probably maybe as strict of a diet as, as you do, but like, um, it it has always been a curiosity of mine is like you have these endurance athletes, whether it's tour divide or smoke and fire, these long and you're these long races and you're, um, you're just eating gas station food and like processed food and like hot dogs from a gas station. And I was always like, man, what if you could like take really good whole food, organic, good food with you, um, on your bike ride and, and be fueling with like legit food. Um, what are some things that you freeze dried for your race? So I didn't, I didn't freeze dry. I dehydrated it. Sorry. Yes. uh, Yep. Dehydrated. So I dehydrated like a lot of rice and beans. And then also for protein, I did some tofu, uh, which it didn't rehydrate the best with like cold soaking it, but, um, it was pretty good. And then also I dehydrated some like broccoli for just like for some greens. And that was pretty much what it was like my lunch uh i had the tofu beans and rice and then i also brought a tortilla that i could just crumble up in it to eat with it um and for dinners i had rice broccoli and uh beans nice so your process for that would be you just put your your dehydrated food in like a what a water bottle or something add some water put it on your bike let it slosh around for a while and like eat it later like what was that actual process like yeah so i had like plastic ice cream container that has like a screw on lid and i just basically yeah poured in the like rice beans and whatever else it was um in and then like filled it up with water so that it wouldn't be like soupy but it just rehydrate enough and then i just put it in my frame bag and like rode an hour or so Um, (laughs) i love that i saw the picture i was actually curious what was in the the ice cream jar i could tell it wasn't ice cream uh but yeah it's all making sense now where did uh where did you get the idea to do that and did you test it out before smoke and fire i had just the first uh, with my dad, the reconnaissance, whatever, I had actually brought like bags of not like just fresh rice, um, that we had cooked and that was really heavy and I didn't, yeah, like lugging all that weight around. So I was like, what if I dehydrated that? And then I don't know where I got the idea of like cold soaking it. And then I didn't, I actually didn't test it before the smoke and fire. Um, I was <laughs> Hopefully this rehydrates well, because I think I also may have seen a video of someone doing it and I'm like, it'll work. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, that's youth for you. Uh, so how did it work? Were you pretty happy with with the? I mean, you know, it's only two and a half days. You can you can kind of get through anything in two and a half days. But was it palatable? Were you happy with that that setup? It really it turned out actually like yeah really well. Um, except for the tofu, it didn't it didn't rehydrate quite well. It was still a little bit crunchy. Yeah. I know, uh, well, I did eggs when I freeze dried it and, um, the, I could never get the, the eggs to rehydrate exactly right, but you know, it's bike packing, so it's not a five-star restaurant. You just really need the calories. That's really cool, man. I, I love that you did that. I've never, I've never heard of anyone else doing it. You're the first, first time. So 129 episodes, you're the first person I've talked to that, that's done that. So you might be teaching some of these old dogs a few new tricks. So let's, yeah. So um, you did the recon with your dad. And then at some point, uh, fires were a huge issue. And and that required a reroute. So at what, like in proximity to the start of the race, when did you find out about the fires and, and, and the reroute and all that stuff? So the Ross Fork fire, the like fire that actually crossed the route, it had been burning like 20 days before. And it was just, it was pretty small. It was only like 7,000 acres. And it was kind of burning like in the middle of the sawtooths. But then there was this major wind shift and it had a like ginormous flare up where it actually came like down to the high, our highway and when it crossed the route and it grew to like almost 40,000 acres in just a couple of days. And that was only like pretty much, I think I like had to um, like reload all of the routes onto my Garmin um, just about two days before the race was the reroute. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So, I mean, that that affects a lot. Resupply points and where you're going to sleep. And, uh, and and do you know how much? I know it changed the distance. I think it went from like 415 miles to 370 or something like that. Um, how did, how did that route change affect your strategy and your planning and your packing? I mean, two days before you're supposed to do it. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So the major like resupply point that I was really like looking for was Ketchum because it's a big town and, um, it would have organic food that I could eat like all of the other like garden Valley and all of the other tinier towns they're really just like gas stations that I couldn't really eat at. So it changed a lot. I had to like go to the store and buy a ton of bars and stuff that I could just pack in my frame bag. And I had luckily already like dehydrated all of my food and I had a couple extras that I could throw in, but yeah. So you basically just had to pack more food was the main thing. Your strategy for for the race, let's talk about a little little bit about that. Did you go in with, I'm going to ride X number of miles, I'm going to sleep X number of hours? Like, what was your strategy? Or were you just like, I'm just going to ride until the wheels fall off and see what happens? Like, what, what was your strategy going into it? So I was actually planning to do it in four days because that's how, like, I, that's, I only thought I could ride that much. But I like started off a lot faster than I thought. And I got like to 121 miles 
um, right before 9 p.m. And so I was pretty happy about that. And that night I slept four hours. I think I got up, I went to bed at like 10 or so after getting everything ready and having dinner. And then I woke up around two and just rode into like the daytime. And I was like, I could probably do this again because I had gotten another early start. Um, so I actually came back to that exact same like place uh, that I had done the first night because it, it turned into an out and back instead of a loop. So I like got to the end, turned around and came back to that same place. Um, and I'm like, okay, all I have to do is the first day again. <laughs> so did you wind up doing about 320, uh, 20 mile days in a row, something around, around that? I think the first day was, yeah, it was about 121 miles. The second day was like 135 and then the third or like last couple of hours um, or 15 hours or whatever it was, was another 121 miles. Wow. That is crazy. So what were you thinking to yourself as, as you were riding further than you thought and you're kind of beating your own estimates by a long way? Not only that, but you're kind of at the pointy end of the race. Like, were, were you like, was your... Um, were your goals and your expectations for yourself evolving as you went or were you just kind of in your own lane, doing your thing, just doing the best that you can? I was just kind of in my own lane. I was like, I still thought I might just like crash, hit a wall where I'd have to spend an extra day out there, but it didn't happen. And I was able to just keep on doing that same pace. Wow. That's crazy. When you finished did you feel like you had more left? Like you could have kept going, you could have pushed it harder or did you kind of leave it all out there and get yourself? I don't feel like I could have gone any faster, like more miles per day, but I feel like I could have like maintained that pace for maybe a couple more days. Wow. Wow. That's cool. That's really cool. One of the neat things that I, well, and I, I think it's kind of neat is that, you know, typically smoke and fire is done in a loop this year because of the the fire. It had to be an out and back, as you mentioned, which means that you're you're passing all of your competitors as you're going. You know, you turn around, you come back and you're getting to see everybody. Uh, was that kind of fun? Was that intimidating? What What was that experience like to be like coming yeah, face to face with all of your competition? It was really fun. And everybody, since I was so young, everybody was like super encouraging. And there were a couple of people that like knew they had just been looking at the track leaders and they had seen me and they're like, are you the 13 year old that's doing it? And yeah, everybody was really encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking I would, I think it would be fun. It just, I don't know, gives you, makes you feel like you're not out there alone. You get to see some other people and uh, yeah, just say hi and uh, see other people that are kind of doing the same thing that, that you're doing. What about the fires? How did they impact uh, you and, and the race overall? Other than the obvious, like, huge reroute. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, like, the first two days, it didn't really impact me too much. You could see, like, a smoke bank, but it wasn't coming towards, like, where the route was. It was kind of blowing a different direction. But like the night of the second day, it started to get a little bit more smoky and I could like feel it in my lungs. And then the morning of the third day or whatever it was, it got really 
uh, smoky. I think the AQI was like around 200. So I actually had to wear an N95 mask that entire last day. And that was like pretty, it was just pretty demoralizing, like not being able to breathe fresh air. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've never even tried to ride a, uh, a bike with a mask on, but I can't imagine it, it being any fun. Did the N95 help, uh, with the smoke? I mean, was it, did it make it more, I guess, just doable? <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely, I think it definitely helped like save my lungs from like that, all of that smoke. But it was also, it was just so hard because like in the morning it was like 30 degrees and all of the condensation from the mask was like dripping down. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty hard. <laughs> how hard, how hard was this for you? I mean, I, I, I can't, I, I can't fathom. I can't fathom, but you were, you went in with a goal of 90 miles or a hundred miles a day, or, you know, that's the furthest you'd ever ridden and you're doing 120, 130 miles. Um, I can't imagine you're anything but impressed with your abilities and kind of like, holy crap, I can, I can do this. Yeah. What, what was that like for you to be, to, to like kind of surprise and surpass your own expectations? It was, it was pretty awesome. I didn't, I didn't think I could do it when I like started or do the time. I was like, maybe I could try to do it in three days because they cut, uh, like a couple I think it was like 50 miles that they cut off, but I was pretty impressed at like how I was able to continue riding, like even through like the smoke. Yeah. What was the, like the hardest part for you? What was the most challenging part of the, of the whole experience? It probably was the last day with the smoke. Cause just like that was that day had a significant amount of elevation and just like breathing that air that you had already like breathed in. Um, it was just really hard. And then the like mask, it also, um, it wasn't filtering out all the smoke, so I could still like feel it in my lungs and yeah. Yeah. That's no, I, yeah. In Texas, we're fortunate, uh, where we don't get a lot of like wildflower fire fires. I know in like, you know, the Western States, it's a little more common. Um, and so that's another experience that I haven't really, uh, you know, had to deal with before. Uh, are the fires relatively common in your area this time of year or with global warming and everything? Is it like just ramping up? They're, they're pretty common around here. It like the past couple of years, it's gotten worse. Like the smoke has blown in more, but there have been like some big fire years where we've had like fires pretty close. There was this one fire um, that actually came right up to our town. Like we had to evacuate part of it, but they were able to keep it away. But it's gotten much more smoky the past couple of years. Yeah, that's no fun. When you're uh how were you watching track leaders at all and, and keeping up with your position and, and the race leaders at all? Did you, did you tune into that? I think like when I got to Stanley where there was service, I tried to check it, but my phone, it wasn't loading. So I was just kind of going off. Um, I had a satellite phone on this and my dad told me like what place I was in. Um, 
And I was like, whoa, geez, I'm going a lot faster than I had thought. Yeah. What, what did your dad say? <laughs> um, keep it up. I think you can do it in three days. Wow. I love it. I love that positivity. Yeah. I mean, I look back and the difference in time between third place and sixth place, which is what you got, was only an hour and a half. So, I mean, it was a very competitive race and you were only eight hours back from Jay Peterberry, who's a legit legend in the sport. I'm curious, I mean, how aware of you uh, are you of like how fast you were in comparison to these other racers? And uh, yeah, how aware of you are, are, are you of that? Well, during the race, I wasn't very, I thought they might be like days ahead of me. But I was I was really happy, like, how close I was to them. Yeah. Are you thinking you might have, like, a career in uh, bike pack racing? Like, what are what is that unlock in your mind as to um, your potential and, and maybe what you would like to do in the future with bike packing? Yeah, it's definitely, like, I'm already, I'm already looking at, like, more races that I want to do. And just thinking I can actually, yeah, make a career out of this. Man, that is so cool. You got that Maxis hat on. Is that one of your sponsors or are you just hoping? <laughs> I just, I just have it on. Uh, do you run Maxis tires? Yeah. Which ones did you run? I run, ran a Maxis icons. Uh, I was hoping you'd say that I'm not sponsored by Maxis either, but that's, that is my favorite, uh, it's my favorite bikepacking tire. I've been using that one. It's a great cross-country tire, great bikepacking. Um, did you have any flats or anything like that, or did they run good for you? They ran really well. I didn't really have any mechanicals on my bike. Yeah. Did you have any issues? Sounds like you had a pretty smooth run besides the smoke. It seems like it was just a really clean run overall. Yeah. I had right towards the end, my uh, disc brake rotor was like rubbing a little bit, but it wasn't like where it was slowing me down. So I just kind of waited until the end. And then also my shifting got kind of messed up. I think it got like a little bit muddy from the riding the second day after the rainstorm. What did you learn um, from this experience? What do you think that if you did this one or another one again, you would, you would do differently? I don't know. I'm not quite sure. Maybe change up my food a little bit. It was good, but it didn't quite like totally satisfy me. Yeah. You're still a little hungry. Yeah. Well, that could be from just pushing your body further than it's ever been pushed. You know, uh, it's not uncommon. People finish these things in a caloric deficit. So, but it's, that's an important, you know, factor. And it's kind of one of the, just another piece of bike puzzling bike packing puzzle is how many calories am I burning and what, what food can I put in my body and, and how well is my food or body going to process that food. And so one thing that's smart about your approach is you're taking in food that your body is familiar with. Um, so there's no guessing game there. Your, your body's going to know exactly what to do with it. What about from, a a, a you know, thinking about the next event that you might do, um, what about like pushing yourself further? You know, there's more miles, there's less sleep. Um, have you thought about what you might do in, in that regard? 
probably just like riding later because the both of the nights I only really rode till like nine or so and then got to bed around 10. Um, so I definitely think that I could probably go um, longer and in, later into the night. And then also I could, I think I could probably do with less sleep because I was getting like four hours of sleep. I felt surprisingly like good for just riding. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, one thing I was looking at, I was trying to just or just going through the stats on um, on the smoke and fire, and I don't know if you looked at this, but your average moving speed was nine point six miles an hour. Jay Peterberry's moving speed was eight point two miles an hour. Where he got you is on stoppage time and sleep, you know. Yeah. And so uh, it's pretty interesting if you look at it from that standpoint like you're you're moving at a fast fast pace and so if you learn how to dial back on stopping as much and sleeping as much and um yeah you're you're right up there in very much contention for winning this race or potentially other races as well is that something that you look back at on the stats whenever you finished I did. And I, I think that speed probably comes because I've done a lot of like cross country races. And I think it probably comes like I'm used to pushing myself pretty hard for those races, like sprinting as hard as I can because they're cross country races, but they're also pretty short. And I think it just comes from like me being used to going like fast. Yeah. But what accounts for your ability to go fast over a long distance? I mean, the that's where the endurance kicks in. You you might just have a natural aptitude for endurance sports. I mean, you know, like may, maybe you just got the good genes to go a, a long way. I mean, one thing I was thinking, and it's something I talk about on the podcast a lot, and one thing I really love about bikepacking and endurance sports in general is that it's it's an equalizer, both with age and with gender. You can see older people, younger people, men and women who are all very competitive. And you're an excellent example of, of a younger person who can be competitive over a long uh, distance. But, you know, if I was going to put you against... Oh, I'm trying to think of uh, Nino Scherter, you know, or what's the, how do you say his name? Nino Scherter, a cross country gold, uh, gold medalist and cross country mountain biking. Um, no offense, but you'd probably get spanked, you know, you'd probably wipe the floor with you. But if you put you against him or put you against some other like ultra endurance bike packers, it, it unlocks and it kind of unle un or it levels the playing field for a lot of people. So I think that's one of the things that I personally really love about bikepacking is that, I mean, anybody can can do this kind of stuff. How did you celebrate? I had like right when I uh, when I got to the finish line, I had like a big slice of pizza, which was kind of really good. But yeah, we didn't really celebrate like too much just kind of um i don't know yeah i didn't really celebrate too much because i had we my school had a field trip um right after and so i actually i missed the first part of like the trip we uh went to actually san francisco um and so i had to fly out there with a couple other people that missed the first part because of a different bike race um but yeah 
So we didn't celebrate future. Well, you can celebrate uh, in your mind. Uh, what uh, what did your friends say whenever, you know, how aware were they of your accomplishment and what did they think about it? They were, I think they were pretty, like, just happy for me. Our, our class is, like, uh, really teasing. So they're like, oh, come on, you only got six. Um, <laughs> but it just kind of, like, funny and, yeah, supportive as well. Yeah. What what's next, man? I need. I mean, you said you want to you want to maybe pursue this. It's it's put the idea in your mind that this is something you could be good at and want to pursue. What what are you thinking? What do you have your eye on on another event already? Oh, I've been looking. There's this race. It's like up in Canada. It's called the um, Alberta Rockies. It's another like around 400 mile race. But I've been looking at that, and that would be pretty fun. And then also just like longer ones, like maybe when I get older, the Tour Divide or like the Silk Road or something like that. Yeah. How uh, are your are your parents like equally as supportive about all this? I mean, this is still a big uh, no matter how what age you are. These these are big, big challenges. They come with inherent risk and danger no matter how old you are. Um, are your parents remaining supportive of, of these, uh, you know, these goals that you're setting for yourself? Yeah, they're really supportive. That's awesome. Well, kudos to your parents, man. Cause a lot of, uh, you probably have friends who have parents that are helicopter parents that won't even let their kids like go to the movies by themselves, much less take on, you know, a $400 or 400 mile, uh, bike packing race. So um, it's rare, but I also think it's important. And I think, you know, everybody's different and you got to figure out who your kids are and what their capabilities are and where their comfort level is. But um, I can't imagine that these experiences aren't going to make you a more capable, confident person in almost anything you do. You know, if you're like go to school and you're like, they give you a lot of homework you're like, well, I mean, I can ride my bike 400 miles on my own. I can live. I can sustain life. I can do all these things on my own. I'm pretty sure I can handle like a math homework or whatever, right? Yeah. I was going to ask you, what was your what was your favorite experience on the Smoke and Fire? I really liked when I got to Stanley. I went to the Stanley Bakery, which has good food that I could eat. And I think I got like two croissants and a scone and then a cup of coffee and that was just it was like really nice to be able to have like that food that was like fresh it wasn't it wasn't just cold like um dry stuff are you a are you a long time coffee drinker or was that a treat for you that was a treat for me uh so you just drink a coffee if you're needing a little pick me up yeah what kind of coffee was it was it straight black what'd you go with I filled it up with like a lot of milk for the, for like the calories. And then I also did just a little bit of honey. <laughs> it's so funny The your favorite experience was the food, but it's, it's not uncommon. Uh, people will often say that they bike pack just so they can eat uh, whatever they want without feeling guilty about it. So that is one of the rewards, I guess. And a little bit of uh, humanity and yeah, warm food when you're, you've been suffering so much uh, can make a, make a big difference. 
you just finished uh, not too long ago. You've had a little bit of time to kind of reflect on on what you did. Um, what what is something or some things that you learned about yourself through that process? Just like how much I could do, just really how much I could do in a day. Like I didn't think I could do nearly that much, but to yeah, just how much I could do in a day. Yeah, that it's that's crazy. And so now are you asking yourself the question, what else can I do that I didn't think that I could, but maybe I can? Yeah, just sort of like I could like I wonder if I could do it on less sleep. I wonder if I could like just do a little bit more a uh, little bit faster. Yeah. That's the, that's the fun part, man, is you just get to kind of figure out, you ask yourself the question and there's only one way to answer it. And that's to go put yourself in some challenging, uh, situations and, and you find out and man, the only thing I would say to you, I'll, I'll, I'll quote, you know, Mike Hall, right. By chance, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, but still a legend in the sport. And, um, it's a quote I've shared a lot on the podcast, but you know, he said that, even failures aren't failures if we learn from them. And obviously, you know, you had a major success on this event, but no matter what happens in the future, even if it's a failure, if you, if you learn from that experience and you come back and you're better the next time, then, then that was still a valuable experience. So no matter what happens in your career, I hope that, uh, yeah, you keep it on perspective, man. Uh, I can only imagine good things are going to come your way and I can't wait to see, see what you do. Um, when is that, uh, race in Canada? Um, it's, uh, next August. Next August. We got to do something before then, right? <laughs> um, and then I don't know. I've just been looking at like other races. Yeah. So nothing, nothing, uh, pinned down yet. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think like what other races are in your area that are coming up, but you uh you look it up and and I'm I'm sure you'll you'll figure it out and Do you do any fat biking? Um no, I haven't really done any fat biking, but it seems like it would be fun. Like just to like even though there's snow just to be able to go out. Yeah. I've only fat biked once and it was in Idaho, um, actually whenever I did it and it wasn't on groomed trails. And so it was kind of, kind of a pain, but, um, still fun, I guess. Type two type fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool deal, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm really excited, uh, for you and for the future of this sport. I love to see, um, younger people getting out there and doing hard things. And, um, I think it's really impressive and I'm excited for you and, uh, can't wait to see what you do, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right. Well go do some homework or something. Maybe go watch (laughs) some cartoons like a normal 13 year old. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. What are you going to do? Are you going to go for a bike ride today or what? Um, yeah, I think I might. What kind of riding do you do on a, on a, on just like a daily basis? I think I, I like probably go out about 20 miles a day, just kind of a shorter little ride because I'm also, now I'm also training for like our state championships, um, race here in Idaho. Uh, it's like through NICA. And so now I'm training for like a shorter race, but then after that, I'll probably keep going, doing like longer rides. 
Do you use the same bike that you used on the smoke and fire for your cross country? Yeah. So I like, I ride rigid even on trails. So yeah. Why? (laughs) I've done it pretty much like all of my, pretty much all of my like biking time. And I just prefer the, how light it is compared to suspension. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, like we talked about, you're, you're not very heavy. Uh, so the lighter your bike is the, it's just going to pay dividends for you, uh, and make it more, uh, more manageable or a little easier or whatever you want to say. That's cool. Well, uh, have fun on your ride today, man. And good luck at, at nationals. Are you hoping to take down a win there? Or you said you're not as good at the short track stuff. So what, what are your goals with that one? I think there's this kid who's really good at sprinting. So I'm probably not going to beat him. Who knows? But I'm trying to go for second. Okay, cool. When does that take place? It's on October 8th. Is that in Ketchum? Uh, no, it's actually in Boise. Okay, not too far away. Well, good luck with it, my friend. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you out there on some more bikepacking races in the future. I can't wait to watch your dot. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And thanks to Eden for coming on and sharing his inspirational story. It's truly remarkable what the human body is capable of. And his story is just one more reminder that oftentimes the greatest limits that we have are the ones that we place on ourselves in our mind. And I hope that Eden's example will unlock not only his own potential, but the potential in the minds of other young people who listen to this episode or hear his story through other means. All right. Well, I am putting this episode out there and then I'm finalizing my packing to go on a little bike packing trip starting tomorrow morning. You may know already that I'm tackling the lowdown route, which is the new route uh, as part of our East Texas showdown. It's 170 miles and it's billed as a non-competitive ride. Absolutely not a race. And uh, me and my buddy Connor are going to be tackling that over the next few days and we're going to be documenting our journey definitely recording a podcast also of course i'm taking my camera to take pictures and um i might even try to make a little video about this one i don't know video is always scary because you have to edit it and that is not a lot of fun but we'll see what happens so let's get this one in the can and out to all you beautiful people But first, I'd like to leave you with a very topical quote of the week. And this one comes from Mark Twain. He says, Age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Nothing could be more true. And Eden is a perfect example of how true those words actually are. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. It is always a pleasure to be in this seat. And until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. 
Oh, death. 